Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. We're continuing our study through Acts this morning. We arrive at chapter 10 where we encounter two of the most prevalent themes in the book of Acts. The first is the story which our starting text this morning summarizes. That, of course, is Peter and the centurion named Cornelius. Peter, to recap, has a vision where God shows him that he is to go to the Gentiles, people who were previously considered unclean and by the Jews unworthy of the gospel, and then simultaneously gives a vision to this leader named Cornelius and says, go find Peter and ask him to come to your home. He has something important to tell you. So it's sort of a Holy Spirit setup. Peter, after protesting, no, Lord, and the Holy Spirit must have thought, well, I'm glad to know that you're still Peter. He's like, no, actually do what I said. And Peter's like, okay, fine. So he goes, they meet, and and this amazing encounter happens. And the first theme that comes out of this book has, or out of this chapter, rather, has to do with the universality of the gospel, the relevance and applicability of God's revelation through Jesus and provision for being reconciled to himself for all people and not just for the Jews. And that, of course, plays out throughout the book of Acts where mostly Paul, but Peter and other apostles to some extent go to the Gentiles and then boom, the kingdom of God explodes and we're here to show for it because most of us are in fact Gentiles. And so that's what was going on in the first half of chapter 10. The reason I'm summarizing it rather than reading and teaching it is that it happens that a few months ago, Pastor Darius read it and taught it and taught that theme. Its primary application for us, of course, is our mission to be united from across the spectrum with one Jesus and the reconciliation, the healing, and, um, and the other work that goes into experiencing authentic unity from across the ethnic as well as church tradition and other socioeconomic and other spectra. Well, rather than reteaching what he capably taught, I thought I would refer you back to that series. It was called One. It was one of the most important that we've yet studied as a church because of the day that we live in, the city where God's placed us, and the ongoing mandate to be united in representing Jesus. So I'd love it if you weren't here for that, for you to go back and listen to it. The series is one. It's on our website, denverunited.com, along with all our other archived series under message. You can listen to it for free or get the podcast. And while you're working out or walking the dog or whatever, I think you will really benefit from uh, diving into this passage with Pastor Darius. What I'm going to do is start in the second half of the passage and address the other theme. As we just read, Peter, after seeing clearly that God shows no favoritism, does what Peter often does in the book of Acts. He preaches the gospel, and we get glimpses of the primary source material of Peter's, Stephen's, Paul's, and others' sermons, and that gives us a great idea for the gospel that they preached before permutations over centuries. And in Peter's preaching of the gospel, he starts by saying, you know what happened how Jesus preached and about his message. And you know that God, verse 38, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then Jesus went around doing all that he did. 
And herein, in verse 38, lies the second major theme in the book of Acts, which is spelled out for us theologically here in chapter 10. And that has to do with the, the fullness of God. Growing up in a traditional church, we sang hymns, sat on pews, and wore robes and things like that. That imparted to me a rich, deep foundation of theological understanding that I didn't really know through the words of those sacred songs. The song that I remember best said, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. So that's our subject for this morning, God in three persons. The doctrine of the Trinity, what we call Trinitarian theology, is spelled out in literal terms in one verse, verse 38. That'll be our key text this morning. It says, you know how God, the Father here, is whom he's referring to, anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Son, with the Holy Spirit. So you have all three persons of the Trinity doing their primary roles in front of the people. And in beginning his gospel presentation, Peter introduces the theme which is so prevalent in the book of Acts, and that is the fullness of each of the three eternally coexistent members of the triune Godhead. In the Old Testament, for much of it, God the Father is center stage. Then in the Gospels, Jesus springs onto the scene, and it's all about him. Now here in the book of Acts and in much of the epistles, we have the Holy Spirit taking the spotlight. Each of the three is essential for us to know God. And so as a sort of premise, let me lay this out. God is three distinct, eternally coexistent persons, and he is that way on purpose. It's not like he just inherited that DNA, like you got a big nose or, or you're, you're prone to dry skin because that was in your family line. God chose to reveal himself and to exist eternally as three in perpetual communion. And he did it that way on purpose. And so each deserves our reverent attention. Verse 38 says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Each has a central role. I think, however, in church, at least as I experienced it growing up in a traditional church, we emphasize God and Jesus, but in some ways diminish the Holy Spirit. I, I don't know how it was for you, but growing up for me, the Holy Spirit in church was kind of like your crazy Uncle Harold, you know, who comes once a year for Thanksgiving and everybody sort of... Um, prepares for it. And he says, he's kind of fun and exciting, but he says crazy impertinent things and, and things that are inappropriate. And the dad's like grabbing the kid's ears like that. And they're like, all right now, Harold, let's ease up on the wine or whatever. And, and, then you, and then you don't really hear from him again for another year, right? In my world of church, the Holy Spirit was like the crazy uncle of God or Jesus. Yet not in Peter's world. And so I want to try and understand why. Jesus here was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. And then, and only then, did he go around doing all the powerful, amazing things that he did. He went around doing that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what I want you to see in this is, Scripture makes clear, we drink from the same well that Jesus did. 
Matthew 12 says, Jesus being accosted by his critics, hey, you're driving out demons by the prince of demons. He's like, no, 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 no. If, if uh, Satan were trying to drive out Satan, it would be a house divided, it could not stand. He said, however, but if I drive out demons by the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God coming upon you looks like this. People doing the supernatural by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We drink from the same well that Jesus did. It's how he set it up. And your question is a good one if you're asking this, but wasn't Jesus God? Didn't we just finish laying out that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are three equal and eternally coexistent members of the triune Godhead? If Jesus was in fact God, why did he need the Holy Spirit to do the powerful things that he did? Why not just get his God on? Well, there is an important uh, doctrine. Theologians call it the kenosis. It's a literal, it's a transliteration of a Greek word that comes from or is, is used most notably in Philippians 2, where the word of God teaches that Jesus being in very nature God, right? Colossians 1 underscores that as do many other texts. He is the exact representation of the Father's being. That's what it says in Colossians. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself, emptied himself, and took on the form of a servant. And that word emptied that, that the translators use for English is the Greek word, or comes from the Greek word kenosis. And that is literally um, used in ancient Greek to mean like dumping out. Like yesterday, I emptied our hot tub to, to prepare it for the cold weather coming up, right? So um, I, I drained it. He drained himself. He emptied himself of his God equality. Now, it wasn't because he stopped being God. He was God all the way through. He simply didn't consider that equality with God as something to be grasped, to be leveraged during this time. Why? Why would he come to earth and empty himself? Because Jesus, in addition to coming to the earth to redeem humankind, came to give us an example. He came to show us the way, right? Think about it. We look to Jesus as our captain and king, and we follow him into spiritual battle. But if Jesus did the things that we were trying to do by getting his God on, what hope is that for us? I can't. You're not made in the image of God. I know I'm not. So I can't roll up my sleeve and bear my strong right arm and vanquish the foes of God. If Jesus did it that way, that would say to us, well, hey, leave it to the professionals, right? And we would be kind of like what the police do when Superman came on the scene. They just sort of sit back and like, you just do your thing, man. We've got nothing. Like, I can't even fly. And if I could, I still couldn't hang with General Zod. So you just go do it. But Jesus' whole point was that we are a priest hood of all believers and that the work of the kingdom is entrusted to us. And so he set us an example. He did everything that he did as a human by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit rather than short-circuiting the process and doing it through his God-likeness. Does this make sense? The kenosis is essential to understanding the Trinity. All right, theological foundation out of the way. Jesus not only modeled reliance on the Holy Spirit for empowerment to do the work of God, but he modeled submission to and dependence on the Father. In John 5, Jesus said, truly, truly, I really want you to believe this. I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, 
but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And so he modeled submission to God, dependence on God, and empowerment from God. Very much, in fact, exactly the way you and I are called to live. Back to verse 38, God, it says, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The next question that this toweringly significant verse asks is, wasn't God with him before? It says, then God was with him and he went around doing good. Well, did he just start becoming God? Didn't he have the Holy Spirit with him all along? And herein lies a faulty um, thinking about God. There's a pitfall, a trap waiting at the end of that question that early believers fell into. And it took a couple of centuries before the, the church leadership, as it was, sorted this out and called it what it was, which is heresy. And that was this idea that Jesus wasn't really God at the beginning. He wasn't fully God. He was a good man who was a good teacher. And then once he was baptized and the dove descended and he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, he sort of became the son of God. But that's not what scripture teaches and that's not how we know Jesus to be. And so what are we to make of this? God was with him before, so now God's with him. Okay, I don't get it. Jesus was always and eternally coexistent with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, John wrote. The Word was with God and the Word what? Was God. Okay, so how was then God with him at this point? God was with him in a particular and special way is what this is getting at. The anointing here is the key. And that word, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is what gives us power to live the way that Jesus lived. So what does that word mean? It's, it's embattled if you've been around um, Pentecostal charismatic church culture, it's, it means a variety of different things and it can kind of become an idol for one and a bitter pill for another and both miss the Jesus way. But the anointing is referring to a Hebrew word that is literally the marking with oil. Do you remember at the beginning of the Lion King? Whatever, somebody can do it. Somebody in this room of 400 can do that thing. Can you do it? Now you gotta do it. Genius. That's why I like the second service. Nobody in the first service did it. I gave them a minute and you know somebody could and they're like, oh, I missed my moment. See, I'm glad you did it. All right, that thing and then Rafiki cracks the oil over Simba. That's literally what anointing is. That's, they just don't call it that, but that's what it was in the Old Testament. And prophets, kings, people who were selected by God from among the common people to be specially set apart for a purpose and a season were anointed. Remember Saul? He went from being like a tall, good-looking, athletic guy to prophesying and leading God's people into battle when he was anointed. The prophet would anoint him, symbolizing God's choosing of him. But it was the connotation of anointing in the Old Testament was that it was sort of ad hoc. 
You know, have you ever been giving ad hoc authority to convene a committee at work that's otherwise people who are your peers, but you have temporary supervisory authority to get this thing done, like the, you know, the company picnic planned or whatever? Well, it was kind of an ad hoc implication. Here, though, Jesus models the anointing of God by the Holy Spirit. And so it's referencing Jesus' comments about what the Holy Spirit's going to do, which we're going to get to in a moment. I don't want to get ahead of myself because I want to keep unpacking this text and laying this out for you. Is this making sense so far? Are you with me? It's important to note that the function of the Holy Spirit here that is referred to as the anointing, this is not salvific. This does not have to do with salvation and eternity, but it has to do with empowerment and living here and now for Jesus according to his design and redemption purpose. Remember that the Holy Spirit is God, right? And as such, he does many things and not just one. Some people get hung up on this. They're like, you know what? I don't buy this anointing of the Holy Spirit for believers concept because I got the Holy Spirit when I got saved. And I would say to you, indeed you did, undoubtedly. And now the Holy Spirit, as it turns out, is doing something different. And the question that that logic pause asks is, do you not think that the Holy Spirit can do more than one thing? If he does this, the implication is clearly he can't do that because he already, I already got something of the Holy Spirit when I got saved. So that's obviously a bunch of emotional, sensationalistic nonsense is how the logic sometimes goes. But if we concede, as all Orthodox Christians do, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternally coexistent members of the triune Godhead all, then nobody balks at God being both creator and judge, Nobody has any hesitation with Jesus' finished work on the cross, making salvation possible, as well as providing for the healing of our hearts. He's God. He's certainly capable of doing more than one thing. He's not like a line of code where he does what he, it was written to do, right? So why would the Holy Spirit be any different? That's just illogical. That's not intellectually honest. That's kind of seeing what we want to see a little bit. Ephesians chapter one speaks to that work of the Holy Spirit at the time when you gave your life to Jesus. Here's what it says. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Do you agree that this has to do with that initial meeting of God time? Having believed, you were what? Marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So you were sealed like the Thompson's water seal on your deck for what God did of transforming your life and renewing your heart. And then you were given a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Now, I don't know how it works for you, but if someone gives me a deposit and they owe me a hundred bucks and they're like, here's 10 bucks, that's the first deposit. I'm like glad because that means they intend to give the rest back. If they don't and all I get is 10 bucks, I'm not happy with that. Deposit doesn't just imply, it sort of promises that there's more to come. So why would we be surprised when in fact scripture makes abundantly clear that indeed there is more to come? right? Look, let me show it to you here. Second Corinthians chapter one reverberates this theme. It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Here's three things he did. He anointed us. 
set his seal of ownership on us. Seems like those are two different things, huh? And put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So the Holy Spirit did what you experienced and indeed is living in your heart. If that's you and you're like, I, I don't believe or haven't felt the need to explore this anointing that this passage talks about because I received the Holy Spirit at salvation. Sure you did. And if you're good with the first 10 bucks and you don't want the other 90, I, more power to you. But I think God's saying there's more. Don't give up. Don't get chased away. Maybe it's been done badly. There's more. Read on. So let me show you this in Jesus' life. John 20, end of his life, he dies on the cross, he raises from the dead, and then he appears to his disciples in the upper room, right? He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And they receive the Holy Spirit. This is, you might say, the moment of their salvation. This is their first encounter with Jesus, having purchased their pardon on the cross and then having raised triumphantly over sin, death, and the grave. So they now believe they, they have are among the first to receive the finished work of the cross. And at that moment, Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. However, shortly after that, if you take a, a harmonious approach to the gospels, it's established clearly that this is later. If you'll just go with me and trust me on that, I don't have time to, to show you exactly why. Later in time, Jesus in Matthew 26 says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore you go. Get out of here. Go do what they're doing in Acts. Go turn the world upside down. Go make disciples of every nation, tongue, and tribe. Go and spread the gospel. And then, last in the chronological sequence of these harmony, harmonious gospel accounts is Luke 23, 24. It'll be on the screen. I'm doing this from memory. That is when Jesus is just about to go up to heaven. And he says... I want you to wait because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. And if I'm Peter, I'm like, you mean the Holy Spirit you just breathed and gave us like a week and a half ago? Do you forget that you did that? But what's ha what is Jesus forgetting? Is he so busy thinking about the redemption of humanity, paying for the future of the world's sins, that he forgot that he already gave him the Holy Spirit? So he's like, oh, no, 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 as he's floating up. Never mind, just go and do the Great Commission after all. That doesn't seem very godlike. Doesn't seem very intentional. Jesus says, go and make disciples. But first, that work is so important and is gonna take so much more than your human strength can accomplish. I want you to stay here in Jerusalem and wait until you receive power from the Holy Spirit. But those of us who grew up with the Holy Duet are like, I already received the Holy Spirit at salvation. Yes, that was so week and a half ago though. The Holy Spirit, as it turns out, is God and thus can do multiple things. I breathed on you and you got him. Sealed, deposit, now stay and you're gonna get power. Does this make sense? Okay, but wasn't God's anointing just for special people in certain important times? Isn't that the whole reason God used the word anointing is that it connotes that ad hoc nature of God's empowerment? A thoughtful question. I'm glad you asked. This is where these two major themes of Acts converge. The universality of God's 
regenerative work, the gospel, and the Trinity and each member's importance. Verse 39, we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Peter loves to stick it to him when he preaches the gospel, doesn't he? So now we get a Peter gospel sermon. And for the sake of time, look at how he concludes it in verse 44. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. Fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. So it is held in some traditions that these gifts obviously happened and this empowerment was real. It's in scripture. We're not going to say that's not true. But the way that that's gotten around for you and me and rank and file Christians around the world and throughout history is to say, well, that's kind of, that's for the apostles. That's the domain of the apostles. Maybe that's true, except the scripture teaches otherwise. Look here. Peter says, What made us distinct as apostles is not that we received this anointing from the Holy Spirit, but that we witnessed all that he did. We saw it. You got to take our words. We were like there while he was dying and got stabbed with a spear. We were there when he appeared in the room and freaked us out. You're going to have to trust our eyewitness accounts. Thus, we are apostles, Peter says. The Holy Spirit? Oh, that doesn't have anything to do with apostles. That's for everybody. The Holy Spirit's empowerment this passage establishes is for all of us. And it's for all the time. It's not for a few of us for a short time. That's part and parcel to the new covenant. That's what makes the good news so good. That's why Jesus said, it's better for you all that I go away because you're going to get the advocate, the Holy Spirit. How could it be better for them? They must've been wondering than having God in the flesh. In Joel chapter two, This was prophesied long before Jesus' day. After doing all those things, talking in advance about the redemption of humankind that was Jesus' death on the cross. After doing all these things, he says, I will pour out my spirit upon, what does it say? All people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Well, sons and daughters were not in the prophesying business in the Old Testament. His point is what was ad hoc is gonna be universal. And that's what Acts is saying. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants. Unthinkable in the days when the kings were the anointed ones. Men and women alike. And I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth. I think this pushes on another social convention in the church that isn't theological, it's more cultural as to why we emphasize God, we welcome Jesus, and we treat the Holy Spirit like the crazy uncle at Thanksgiving. I think that we've had it maybe presented to us or we've concluded for ourselves that the Holy Spirit in the work and the life of a believer is kind of like, um, like the fancy upgrade options. You know, you turn 40, you're doing well in life. You are know, like, should I have a midlife crisis? Nah, I don't really have the time or the money to have a quality midlife crisis. So I'm just going to get a new car instead. And I'm, but I'm going to get the one with the heated leather seats, right? Not necessary. Nice to have in Colorado. 
but inessential. It's kind of like the splurge upgrade for the, for the enthusiast or the person who's going to go a little all in this, this time around. And I think we've looked at the Holy Spirit like sort of the luxury upgrade option. But what the scripture's teaching here and what Jesus' life models and what can only be true if we're to make sense out of Jesus saying, go and turn the world upside down, go and book of Acts yourselves. But first, wait until you receive the Holy Spirit because you need power to do what you otherwise could not do in your own strength. What makes that make sense is that the Holy Spirit is not an upgrade option. He's the engine. He's not the heated leather seats. He's not the nav system. And he's not the little woman's voice who comes over the car if you have an accident or you lock yourself out. He is what makes the car go. Fast forward to chapter 11. Peter's recounting to the skeptical apostles back at the ranch as to how this all went down with the Gentiles getting the gospel because they were squeamish too. No one did this. And they're like, I don't know, Peter. I think that your zeal maybe has gotten ahead of your wisdom. And he's like, no, 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 guys, listen. And he tells them what happened. He tells them the story. They're still kind of in the balance through Holy Spirit told me about them and Holy Spirit told them about me. All that doesn't compel them. But you know, when they tip, he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's words. When he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they're like, done. Change the whole deal. Go to the Gentiles. And boom, the world gets turned upside down. It was the Holy Spirit coming on them that made case in point. The Holy Spirit is essential and is available to all of us for all the time. This passage refers to Jesus' words. They're in red letters in your Bible. Jesus said it again and again. Peter reminds them that he said it. John the Baptist, who started the whole deal by calling people back to faithfulness to God, he baptized in a river of water. Jesus, John said, is going to come along and he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. It's like John stood there as as a foreshadowing like an illustrated sermon showing what Jesus is going to do. But instead of baptizing in a river full of water, Jesus is going to come and baptize you in a river full of fire. And that's how you're going to go change the world. And so this notion of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, here we jump from what the scripture says and what is intellectually honest and compellingly true to what we feel. And for good reason. Some of us have had really wonderful experiences with the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Many others of us went to a church camp with a neighbor when we were 16 at a tender, impressionable age where we're super sensitive to awkward situations anyway, and we're sort of bait and switched, and then before we know it, the whole herd's going up front, so we're up front, and someone's yelling and screaming at us, pushing us and telling us to give utterance, and we don't know what that means. We think they're talking about a cow's milk delivery system. They're like, no, give utterance. They're like, I don't know what it means, but I'll do it if you'll stop grabbing me, and it's super traumatizing, and I can't tell you how many adult Christians I've met who go back to that place of trauma because you kind of Oprah and Dr. Filled yourself, right? You know how Oprah says, if you have a wound, you make a vow. You made like an Oprah vow and you're like, maybe you didn't do it consciously. Maybe you never said it out loud, but you're like, I'm never doing that again. That was crazy town. And so someone in your mid thirties talks about the baptism in the Holy Spirit and they're showing it to you right out of scripture. And there's not a lot of razzle dazzle. And you're like, nope, 
the firewall drops because you're responding to all the, to, to trauma, just like we respond to all traumas. And so I'm not saying pretend that didn't happen. First, I'm saying, I'm so sorry if that happened to you. You're like, well, you didn't do it. Yeah, but church leaders did. And they were trying and they meant well, but they did it maybe poorly. I'm so sorry that happened to you. That's not God's heart. He's gentle and kind. He said, we're like nursing mothers among you. And two, if that hurt, that's real. And sealing it off and throwing out the baby with the bathwater may not be any more effective a way to deal with this trauma than it is an effective way to deal with any trauma. So what if you open that thing up and invite Jesus to come in and illuminate your heart and bring healing to that wound? Because friends, it's real. Like remember Han Solo, like old Han Solo in the, in the episode seven, like the force, the Jedi, it's all real. The baptism in the Holy Spirit, the gifts, the empowerment, it's real. And it's how we live and thrive. Some say, well, if God wants me to have it, he'll give it to me. Have you ever heard that or thought that? Maybe that's true, but if God wants me to have it, he'll give it to me. And this loosely corresponds with the church tradition that doesn't do theological gymnastics to explain away what the Bible comprehensively teaches. And it's too attentive to the scripture to say, don't care about the Bible. So instead they kind of go, don't ask, don't tell on the Holy Spirit, you know? And where that plays out is this. That may be true. And if God wants me to have it, I'm confident he'll give it to me. And to that, I would say, maybe. But here's the thing. I'm pretty sure God wanted you to have salvation. And he didn't just foist that on you. He held it out. But here's what the word of God reveals in Revelation 3. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. The door which I thought of and created and could eviscerate with the blink of an eye. Nonetheless, I stand outside of it and knock. And if you'll open the door and invite me in, I'll come in and dine with you. I'll change your life. I'll heal your heart. I'll redeem your purpose. And I'll give you everlasting life. But Jesus is a gentleman. He didn't lower the shoulder and bull rush through your door, revealing a God who is a gentleman. Wouldn't it stand to reason that the Holy Spirit is a gentleman as well? So maybe like Jesus and the father before him, the Holy Spirit does want you to have this anointing. Jesus said, I'm gonna go away so you can get it but maybe he's not gonna wrestle you to the ground and take over your body and, and do it in an involuntary, pushy way. Some have said, well, I'll just speak in tongues. It'll just happen if God wants me. Maybe not. Maybe he's not gonna take over like your faculties, your vocal cords or otherwise. You still get to choose. That's Jesus' way, wouldn't you say? And Jesus says in Luke 11, so I tell you, ask. Keep on asking. Don't just ask once and be like, well, didn't get it. So let's go get wings. Keep on asking and you will receive. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and 
the door will be open to you. For everyone, would you say it with me? Everyone. See, when you say it, it gets into your heart. Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? If they ask for a snack, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? There's so much more I want to tell you. Some of the questions I'd like to answer, and I look forward to the coffees and lunches that will follow because you're not going to bug me or Pastor Darius or Pastor George or any of our staff. We'd love to talk these things through with you and clear up some of the murkiness and make the inaccessible of God accessible. Um, but I'd like to make a book recommendation. The best book I've found on respectfully and clearly and unflinchingly understanding and approaching the Holy Spirit is written by a pastor who's been a, a pastor to me, uh, an older man down in, in Texas named Robert Morris. He wrote a book called The God I Never Knew. You can get on Amazon right now, order it for 10 or 12 bucks, and it'll be in your doorstep tomorrow. It's an easy read. Let me just read you a little excerpt. If you're like most people, you've probably been misinformed about the Holy Spirit to some degree. After more than 25 years of experience in ministry, I've seen firsthand that most Christians hold a distorted, inaccurate, or incomplete view of the third member of the Trinity. In fact, many frustrated believers are utterly unaware that a loving and amazing person desires to know them and to fill their empty lives with good things. Too many have resigned themselves to perpetual defeat in their battles with temptation or to stumbling through life, making decisions with nothing more than their own flawed reason to guide them. Others live a dull, powerless brand of Christianity, completely at odds with the picture of the vibrant, overcoming, advancing church of the book of Acts. The dynamic full life Jesus promised to believers is a natural outgrowth of intimate friendship with God, the Holy Spirit. So let me leave you with this simple exhortation. First, I challenge you to let go of your preconceived notions. They may be real, they may be deep, and uh, they may be attached to a wound with a vow. Invite Jesus to come in and heal and bring his light there. And then get to know all of God. Listen, we value authenticity in our generation, and that's a virtue. Scripture makes it irrefutably clear. The Holy Spirit is God. So let me just say this. If you're uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit, you're uncomfortable with God. That's okay. You're allowed to be where you are. I would just challenge you to own that. Lean into it. What are you going to do about that? And then don't settle for saved. Why would we settle for saved when empowered, fulfilled, healed is on the table? You know, um, I understand the Holy Spirit is 
mystical and can seem weird and the way he has been presented to many of us is off-putting. And I get that. And if you need it not weird, there's things to do about that. But here's the, here's the thing, and I've told you this before, it's worth repeating. You, two weeks ago, took a shelf-stable wafer and ate it with a little cup of juice, telling yourself you were consuming the body and the blood of a man that lived 2,000 years ago, died, came back to life, and ascended into the clouds and now lives somewhere in the ethereal cosmos with God. What's my point? You're kind of already weird. Right? I mean, if you need it to be naturalistic and explainable and to fit into your human understanding, I don't know what to tell you, but it's not God. I mean, you can worship the trees. Half of Colorado does that. But here's the problem with that. You know too much. You know too much. You've experienced too much. You're going to be bad at worshiping the trees and living for yourself and sin, sinful pleasures. It's not gonna fulfill you because you have been awakened to God. In you burns the glowing red center of the fellowship of burning hearts. Your heart is going to be restless and it will never find rest until it rests in God. And you have to know all of God for that to happen. So why live in limbo? Go back if you need it to not be weird. But listen, God never promised that the supernatural was going to make perfect sense or that it wouldn't be a little hard to grasp. If it's been done in a socially objectionable way, well, take your lap around the track, but you know too much to throw the baby out with the bathwater, don't you? Would you stand up with me? Heavenly Father, I confess my complete and total dependence on you. Jesus, your word makes clear what my heart knows is true. If we abide in you and your words in us, we will bear much fruit, but apart from you, I can do nothing. So I pray that you would take my feeble attempts at illuminating your transcendent truth and cause it to stick in our hearts. What's from you, would you transform us with it? And Lord, would you cause my friends' hearts to burn within them, to know all of God, to know the unknowable, to lay hold of the eternal one, to receive the gesture of friendship from our God. Would you give them grace and hunger to know you? Friends, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, I'd simply like to ask you if that's you. If you have received and given your life to Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit as a seal and a deposit guaranteeing all that is to come. Well, part of what is to come is the anointing of the Holy Spirit an immersion Jesus described as a baptism, like when you went under the water, in the fullness of the power of God, power to overcome sin, power to live a life of love when you feel like hating, power to heal in your own heart, power to demonstrate the goodness of God in the midst of a generation that's darkened and searching for hope. And if that's you, maybe you've never prayed. Maybe you've never taken Jesus at his word and asked. And you're ready to ask. Or maybe you have. Maybe you got filled with the Holy Spirit at seven this morning in your quiet time. Well, keep on asking. Because Jesus said he gives the spirit without limit. God isn't going to say, well, you got your week's worth. Make it last. Keep on seeking. Keep on finding. 
If that's you and you'd like to pray to receive this anointing, the, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, it's not going to be sensationalistic. We're not going to spit on you or blow you over or anything like that. I'm going to pray with you because it's your faith. It's not mine. It's your faith. And then we're going to agree with you. If that's you, would you just put your hand up? Just slip your hand in the air. Some of you are, are doing this. You're, you're thinking, I want to wait and hear what he says next. Is he going to make me come forward? You can stay right where you are. And then we'll invite you to come forward after and receive prayer if you'd like. I'm not going to make you do anything. I'm not your God. I'm nothing. I'm just the messenger. So you get to sit right where you are. All we're going to do is pray. Now, if you want to receive this, if you want to pray and ask God for this empowerment, you're not receiving it from me. I'm just going to lead you in prayer. Would you put your hand in the air? Like, I don't see why that in every one of us. I do. Two hands for me. God, I want everything you have. I'm not interested in coming to church and checking a block and living a powerless life and being stuck in no man's land where I'm not very good at living for Jesus and I'm not very good at living for the world. I want everything you've got. All right, let's do this. All over the room. Would you just open your hands like this in case you're like, oh, that's a little charismatic for me. Here's what the word of God says. I, in, I endure people everywhere. I, I instruct you, he says, to lift up holy hands in prayer. So you're just doing what scripture says do. And what this is, is a sign of receiving. It's saying, yes, God. It's just saying yes. Now, if you'd like, will you repeat this prayer after me? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to redeem and heal my life. And thank you for giving the Holy Spirit to seal, mark, and empower my life. And I want all of you. You said, ask, so I'm asking. Would you anoint me with the Holy Spirit? Would you baptize me in your spirit? Just like Jesus said he would do. That I would be full of your power and life. And that I would do the things that you've created and redeemed me to do. Help me to keep on asking and keep in step with you, Spirit of the living God. I love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you all. We hope you've been encouraged and inspired. For more information or to submit a prayer request, please go to denverunited.com. 